This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today is the first day of rail service between Union Station and Denver International Airport. The train makes six stops in between, and one of them is at 61st and Pena Boulevard. It bears the name of Federico Pena, former Denver mayor and secretary of transportation in the Clinton administration. The airport is where it is today, whether you like the location or not, in large part because of Pena. He joined me from his office downtown. Secretary, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. You were elected mayor of Denver in 1983 with the slogan, Imagine a Great City. How did a bigger or a new airport fit into that? Well, it was part of the comprehensive strategy of what I consider to be strategic investments in Denver to move the economy forward. So a new convention center was one, a new airport was another, a new library, uh, rebuilding our neighborhoods, making small business investments, uh, redoing uh, downtown and lower downtown, which of course was composed of dilapidated buildings. So it was part of a comprehensive strategy, but there is no doubt that building the new airport was the most prominent of those investments. I understand, though, that there was talk of expanding Stapleton at first, right? Absolutely. The, In fact, when I ran for mayor in 1982 and early 1983, my campaign uh, position was to expand Stapleton onto the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And that was the position of the most of the business and civic leaders in the in the metro area. And in fact, when I took office in July 1 of 1983, I attended the first meeting of the Denver Regional Council of Governments. And that's when the entire metro mayors and county commissioners voted two to one to expand the airport onto the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. But uh, folks in Adams County weren't uh, big fans of the idea of expanding Stapleton. They were not. And frankly, when I sat down with them privately out of the glare of the media, uh, they said two things, which I thought made a lot of sense. They said, number one, if we expand the airport over I-70 onto the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, you're going to bring and bombard uh, Brighton and Commerce City with more noise, and we already had a problem with noise. And secondly, they said, God forbid, if an airplane were ever to crash and land in our communities, it would be a disaster. And as I listened to them, I thought to myself, those are very reasonable concerns. And I then asked, well, what is the solution? And they said, we'll move the airport to the east. And it's funny, if you look at the map of the county of Denver, it's... Um kind of concentrated in one spot, and then all of a sudden there's this long neck that represents Pena Boulevard and then where the airport is. That's right. So back then, Denver was about 110 square miles of land, and so we expanded the city and county by a third by annexing 50 square miles of land, and we needed that because we did not want to replicate the mistake of old days, which was to build an airport on a constrained site and then finding we were going to have the same problem 50 years from now. So we said, let's let's have enough land mass so we can build as many runways as foreseeably can be contemplated so that we don't make the mistakes of old. And that's how we came up with this 50-square-mile number. And also the, uh, the boulevard, as you refer to, we built into that a, a one-mile corridor with the idea that someday we would build a train. Well, that was uh, my next from- question. A train, then, was always a part of the DIA vision. Absolutely. So one of the pieces of that was having a train. The other piece was having a hotel built on site. And then eventually, 
we wanted to, to develop a comprehensive land use plan for the entire area. And this is what some refer to as an aerotropolis or an airport city and that the current mayor, Michael Hancock, has embraced. Absolutely. What, what do you say to people who think the airport is still too far away from the city center. I feel like I hear that every time I have to pick someone up at the airport or be picked up at the airport. Well, there still are some people who are not happy with the distance, but I must tell you, more and more people are now accustomed to it because of all the new transportation corridors that access DIA. If you're coming from the north, if you're coming from the uh, on either one of the beltways, and of course now with the new a commuter line from downtown. It'll have a number of stops and finally stopping at the airport. People are going to have many, many options to get to the airport. So it will be easier and easier. But to the people who still, you know, complain about the distance, I would say, look at the thousands and thousands and thousands of new jobs that have been created with the new airport. Look at the economic impact. In fact, you know, most people don't realize this, but I think over 90% of the people who work at the airport don't live in Denver. That's a startling fact. Most of them live in the suburbs. So this has been an extraordinary economic impact on the entire metropolitan area. And I would say you have to weigh that in the balance for the additional time that people take to get out there. But most importantly, we've eliminated the noise from Adams County in Aurora in particular and North Denver. We now have room to expand in the future that I would say most cities in America would die for. Well, I want to go back to this idea that you say um, you relieved noise from Adams County. Now there's this whole idea of building around the airport. Aren't you just going to create more neighborhoods that are in the future going to complain about noise? No, because when we signed the agreement with Adams County, we put into that agreement prohibitions on certain kinds of construction like residential dwellings that would be within the noise corridor. Manufacturing and other kinds of office space can be built, but not residential. So that was built into the plan because we didn't want to replicate the problem of encroachment by residences. Let me get back to the history here. When DIA opened on February 28th, 1995, it was 16 months behind schedule and nearly $2 billion over budget. Right. Some even called it Pena's folly, referring to you. (laughs) Can you take us back to the mid-90s when DIA's future was uncertain? Well, what what happened was, and and the main problem was the baggage system. And when I was leaving office as mayor, and I think it was on 1990, 1991, United Airlines came to the city and said, we want to build this very sophisticated baggage system at the new airport. I went to Germany and other countries and looked at baggage systems there, and they seemed to work fine, came back here. We gave them preliminary authorization to move forward with a company in Texas that they had identified. I left office. I went to Washington, D.C. Secretary of Transportation. Uh, Mayor Webb then became mayor, and the city council at that point finalized the agreement and went with this company in Texas. And it turned out that as much as United had studied this, and we thought we had studied it well too, uh, it was far in excess of the capacity of that company. This system had 17 miles of track, 14 million feet of wiring, and it was supposed to be entirely automated, and it never worked. There were millions in overruns, and it was such a failure that it became the subject of a business school case study Quoting from that paper, dysfunctional decision-making is the poison that kills technology projects. 
There's some truth to that. Uh I think one thing that everyone learns about adopting new technologies that have never been implemented at least to scale is that you've got to be absolutely certain it works. You've got to test it and test it and test it until you know that it works before you uh, implement it. And that was a lesson that was learned. We went with a new technology that had never been used to scale in, in the degree that you described with a company that didn't have much experience doing this. There was insufficient time to test it, and we all learned from that. So that was one of the mistakes made, and hopefully others will learn from that. But the important thing is that the airport, even at the additional cost, is far cheaper than anyone else in the country thinking of building one or two runways. Now, if you build one runway somewhere in America, it costs over a billion dollars just for one runway. Here's what Mayor Wellington Webb in 95 said at the airport's opening. And for those that would continue to work against this airport and debate whether it should have been built, is really nonsensical and silly. You say the airport has always been profitable, but my understanding is that 10 years after Mayor Webb's announcement there, a DIA was still $4 billion in debt. The commuter rail and planned hotel were on hold indefinitely. Shed some light on that for us. Well, first of all, the airport is in debt today. I mean, airports, like many other um, systems, have debt, uh, long-term debt. The point is the debt's always been paid. The airport is profitable. The airport has never lost money. It's almost like your home. So you've got a family, you have a a loan on your home, but your family income is still profitable. You're still making money. You're able to pay off the debt. That's exactly what's happened with DIA. And to the notion that the hotel project and the transit project actually came much later than you first envisioned. It is absolutely correct that the hotel and the commuter rail were put off go back to the economy of the 1990s, which was very difficult, even though it started to finally come to life. And so I think uh, everyone made the right decision. You don't build a commuter rail until you know the ridership is there. And you don't build a hotel until the hotels in Denver have vacancy rates that are reasonable. So I think people looked at supply and demand uh, as it existed in the 1990s and put off uh, the commuter rail in the hotel until it was consistent with the economic times in which they were finally built. That's the smart thing to do. In a white paper that was put out by Denver's former city auditor, Dennis Gallagher, in 2014, apparently costs for DIA's hotel and transit center were about 44% higher than 2010 estimates. Uh, DIA responded that the report was flawed. But I want to ask you a bigger question. Is it simply the nature of large projects to run over budget Or is the public right to expect that big projects will be completed on budget? I think the public has a right to expect that big projects will be completed on time and on budget. So, for example, when we did the convention center, that was built on time and on budget. That's an example of one that went very well. I think when it comes to very complex projects where certain factors are sort of out of your control, things get a little fuzzy. And that's when... Errors are made, budgets are busted, and timelines are not met. I think the important thing is for institutions that are making those investments to have backup plans, to be flexible, to be able to make adjustments so that at the end of the day, the investment pays off. The cost-benefit analysis is there. That's been the case with DIA. So that it is always profitable. That has been the case of DIA. And so that it actually produces 
the positive impact that was initially envisioned. And I would argue that the positive impacts of DIA today surpassed the expectations which we had many, many years ago. To wrap up, what goes through your mind when you drive down Peña Boulevard, or I suppose if you come to stop at the Peña stop along the new rail line? It is a humbling experience, uh, to be quite honest. My my children think it's pretty cool, (laughs) but uh, I refer to it as the boulevard. Um, Why? Because you you, you think it's like um, egotistical to say your name with it? uh, Something like that, yes. (laughs) And so... uh, but look, I, I'm very honored that the city council made that decision after I left office. Uh, I'm very honored that the, the station is being named after me along the boulevard. And what's most important is that these investments have been supportive of the broader community. Denver, to a large extent, and, this, and I'm speaking of the metro area, I, I see that the wind company is building a new plant in Aurora. This is the kind of economic impact that we all envisioned for the broader metro area. And I always argued to all the parties involved back then that we had to look to the future, not to the first four or five years, but for the next 50 years. And I believe that this investment with the new commuter rail, with all those stops, which will stop in Adams County and in Denver, will help travelers, will reduce pollution, but most importantly, it will add to the quality of life of the Denver metro area. Secretary, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Federico Pena was Denver's mayor from 1983 to 1991. He joined me from his office for a look back as the train to the plane opens. There may be celebration of that rail service today, but in Boulder County, voters are frustrated that it could be decades before rail service there is built out. Hear that conversation at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back with a Colorado film crew that traveled to Nepal, where that massive earthquake struck a year ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Monday will mark a year since a powerful powerful earthquake struck Nepal. Aid group Save the Children says almost 3 million people are still without permanent shelter. That's about 10 percent of the country's population. A film crew from Grand Junction traveled to Nepal last month. They're making a documentary about the recovery, and they were particularly interested in widespread charges that the Nepalese government is failing to get aid to victims. Joel Dyer led the effort. He joined Andrea Dukakis via Skype. Joel, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be on today. Having just been to Nepal, what does the aftermath of the earthquake look like? It's quite bad. Uh, both in urban uh, and rural areas. There's a lot of people who are still hurting. The farther you get from the cities, the more you see people who are affected, uh, and the more you see people who who are in bad need of assistance. Uh, A year later, the monsoon is coming in many areas. Uh, There are tens and hundreds of thousands of people living in temporary and vulnerable structures, and they're they're facing a very few difficult months heading into this monsoon season. In the cities, there there was a perception that I think was somewhat created by the foreign media that the cities were completely flattened, and that's simply not true. And life goes on, you know. And, and Nepal is still a very safe place for foreigners to travel. It's it's a it's a very friendly and easy experience to be in those cities. But at the same time, you still do see many people who are standing in front of the rubble of their homes a year after, and and those who lost everything have simply no means to rebuild. And and so here are the bricks of their former lives thrown into the street. They're still standing here a year later waiting for something to change. 
And the outskirts, uh, are those really the ones that are struggling? The epicenter of the earthquake uh, lies in central Nepal. And those were rural villages that were the most severely impacted. But you can see damage all across the country. Many small villages, many farmers are still struggling with landslides. They saw their soil disrupted and their livelihoods have, have been very difficult to restore in that sense because to some degree, people are still waiting around in the rural areas for the next earthquakes to come. You know, in the time after the, the big earthquake of April 25 of last year, Nepal has seen hundreds of aftershocks. I believe there were 300 aftershocks in just the two months after that first large quake. And so many people are, are you know, living in temporary shelters saying, why, why should we rebuild when we don't know what will happen tomorrow? You're looking at widespread criticism that the Nepalese government failed to take advantage of international donations for disaster relief. What specifically are your concerns? When you're on the ground in Nepal, those stories are everywhere. Uh, you talk to local NGOs, you talk to, to foreign NGOs who do their best to stay away from the government because the moment they're touched by bureaucracy or the moment they're touched by a, an ambitious politician, they know that some of their materials and some of their ability to reach people is going to disappear. You also hear that from Nepalese who are standing in their farm fields in rural areas without good shelter, without uh, water, without access to the basic necessities of life. Who, who will stand there and tell you, look, the only assistance we've received is from Australians, is from people in the U.S., is from people in Europe. We haven't seen a single thing from our government. On this particular trip, you met one Kathmandu businessman, and here's how he described the effect of the quake. A lot of the people have lost what they have gained in their lifetime. A normal person uh, who was living a normal middle-class life may have lost so much that they may be drawn into a poverty line, you know. Did you meet other people who experienced that kind of rapid economic decline? You see this all over the country, and, and you come to understand that an earthquake is not a monolithic thing. It doesn't impact everyone in the same way, and there, there's a spectrum of ways that, that people can be harmed. Nepal still has 5.6 million people who were affected by this, and, and some 2.8 million are, are displaced. You know, they're not living in the home they had on April 25th of last year. And so you, you see folks who are standing in front of the rubble of their homes who don't have the resources to rebuild and have little hope of, you know, the four or five billion that's sitting out there in international commitments ever arriving through the government. And you see folks who, who lost a small business. You see folks who whose fields have been so disrupted by the earthquake that they can't reliably plant seeds for the coming harvests. You see those effects and those ripples move through a society in, in a way that really touches everyone. And in one case, there was a neighborhood on the outskirts of Kathmandu in an in a, a, a urban area where many homes had collapsed. And these neighbors, in lieu of government assistance or, or the kind of resources they needed, had made a pledge to each other that, that they were all going to get their homes back. And those folks were working in teams to dismantle homes that were partially collapsed, to recycle materials. And, and you know, to, we're, we're about halfway through this many months process of taking down structures that were damaged and working to replace them in the future. And so here they are, you know, lending each other a, a hand and, and the young men are, are shoveling the bricks out and the women are carrying baskets on their backs where they're carrying these bricks off to recycling. And, you know, the Kids are running through on their way to school, and it, it has all the semblance of a normal life, but it really demonstrates that power of community coming together and, and you know, the resilience of a people in the face of, of something 
so massive and so so beyond their power. Lots of countries donated to relief efforts. Having talked to a lot of people, what exactly is keeping the money from these victims? The Nepali people are great people. You know, they're they're thoughtful and hardworking and genteel and collaborative, but their politicians and the big families that that hold power in that country and these these interests that have taken over political parties and, and the bureaucracies and you know all the organs of the government are not that. And there's a problem that pervades the political class in Nepal where where those who come to power are overwhelmingly just seeking to enrich themselves and to establish legacies for their families, to send their kids abroad, to you know, to put money in their own bank accounts far more than they are interested in, in helping the, the average guy on the street. Let's hear from an NGO manager you met um, who also spoke to this issue of why Nepal has been slow to take advantage of foreign donations. The money is there. It's not a question of the resources. The question of the attitude of the people, you know, the attitude of the bureaucrats, attitude of the politicians. And that's, that's the biggest change we want to see in the Nepal, really. What does he mean when he says attitude of the politicians? When a lot of these folks come to power and, and Nepal is still fighting to establish a fledgling democracy, you know, after uh, having only sh- deposed the monarch in 2008, a lot of folks come to power and, and they see an opportunity for self-enrichment. In the case of the earthquake, there's a great deal of money to be dispersed. There are many contracts to be handed out. There's family members. There's you know ancestral villages to be helped. And so you really see an entire political class fighting over the potential spoils of the earthquake recovery money, such that they've, they've been un, unable to reach agreement on, on even the most basic parts of that distribution, on even the most basic assistance that could be provided to people who badly need it now. Did you see specific examples of government officials profiting from these relief funds? We did not see this. That was a universal critique we heard across the country. We're speaking to farmers one day in a rural area, and they say, we know the government's out there asking for money on our behalf, and we know we're never going to see it. If those checks get to the government, they'll be telling a donor that it came to us, but we know that the only help we've received is, is from people abroad. Joel, based on what you've seen, do you have any advice for how wealthier countries should give aid in the future? Maybe not just in Nepal, but also in places where there have been recent earthquakes like Japan and Ecuador. Um, Many large foreign NGOs do very good work. They can bring work on big scales and and they can make things happen, but they're often slow. And their aid is always going to be filtered through those governmental channels where some of it will will fail to reach the people. And so when folks are, are looking at contributing to a disaster, it's always good to look for those small local NGOs who have those relationships on the ground and are embedded in the culture. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Grand Junction filmmaker Joel Dyer speaking with Andrea Dukakis. He and his crew traveled to Nepal with support from organizations on the Western Slope. They plan to release their finished documentary in the fall. Coming up, the man who makes Game of Thrones a feast for the ears. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new season of Game of Thrones, HBO's Emmy-winning drama, starts Sunday. And if you've seen it, you're familiar with dragons. (coughs) Then there are whites. They're like zombies. The sound of the show, everything but the music, really, is overseen by a CU Denver grad. 
Tim Kimmel, his supervising sound editor. He won the Emmy for Outstanding outstanding Sound Editing last season, and he joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Hi, Tim. Hello, how are you doing today? Good, nice to speak with you. So the entry for that... Thanks for having me. Yeah, the entry for that Emmy nomination was the eighth episode from last season, which was titled Hard Home. Uh, There's a massive battle between the undead army of White Walkers, or Whites, and uh, characters called Wildlings. There's a lot going on there. In an interview, oh, that, that definitely is. <laughs> yeah, in an interview with Esquire magazine, you said this scene was overwhelming when you first saw it without sound. Why was it overwhelming? Uh, well, if you take a look at the amount of things happening on screen, it's uh, it's a lot to take care of. Uh, a lot of a lot of things of the, to fit on the soundscape. Uh, you know, the sounds of the of the wildlings uh, in panic, the sounds of the whites coming in, into attack, uh, the giant. Um, you know, they're 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 trying to get through that uh, huge wood uh, uh, fence, keeping them out. There's there's a lot going on, and there's a lot to. Uh, a lot, a lot to a lot to tackle. Yeah, and so when you see sort of a, a naked cut without any sound, do you get literal? Do you start to count how many of you know one type of character there is, and how many of the other, and then think we need eight sounds of this and nine sounds of this, or is it more impressionistic? It's it's more impressionistic. Um, you know, first we'll I'll watch the show with the producers, so I can uh, kind of get inside their head on what they're thinking. Uh, where they want to go with the sound. Um, you know, when I see that first cut of it, there are some sounds that have been put in by a picture editor just to kind of help the feel of what the scene is going to end up like, uh, but there's, you know, not too much detail to it. Uh, but no, we, you know, we don't get too literal with it. You know, a lot of times you'll see a bunch of things happening on screen, and if we heard every single thing we saw, it would just be a, a, a wall of sound, and, and you wouldn't be able to really hear much of anything at all. So we, we usually try and figure out which specific details we want to poke through and and put our focus on. Interesting. Uh, We heard some sound from the whites, again, essentially zombies. How do you go about creating a sound for a zombie? Uh, Good question. Um, You know, going back to season two, you know, there was original talk of, you know, these these characters are dead. You know, they're basically just a shell of a a body that wouldn't have vocal cords. So (laughs) the initial talk was no sound but you know on the on the screen that just doesn't have much of an impact so we we started messing with different vocals um you know we would we would record ourselves doing a bunch of different sounds and start manipulating them until they seemed to kind of fit um and you know play them play them for the producers until until we found ones that we all liked um you know uh, the first time we really had to uh go after the sounds for them was the season finale of season 4 uh, when uh, Bran and Hodor and Mira get up to uh, the cave of the Three-Eyed Raven and are stopped by uh, you know a handful of these whites, um, that's the first time we really had to start trying to figure out how they would sound. But of course, once you get into the Battle of Hard Home, you have to take that and multiply it by uh, you know thousands. Um, so you know we create a lot of individual sounds to hear you know some individual ones poke through, but we also had to create a sound almost like a, a swarm sound of these things. So you could just feel the, the mass amount of, uh, of whites coming at you. Okay, do for me the kind of test voices that you did for the whites. 
Oh man, you're gonna make me perform on the radio the the, the white vocal. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 a very throaty kind of kind of sound um, that we would do, um, you know. And then we we start manipulating it. Funny enough, my son, my my eight year old son, is is in there a little bit because <laughs> I was recording some of this stuff at home, and he started impersonating me. And I said, "Well, come here, let's make you let's make you a monster." Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, he's never seen the footage of what his his voice sounds like because I can't show him the show just yet. But uh, um. You know, we start taking these uh, these these sounds and uh, you know building on them, and you know because there's so many different ones, we have to really manipulate and try a bunch of different styles in order to get uh, you know so it doesn't sound like the same guy all over the place. So it's not infrequent then that your voice, I suppose, even your offspring's voices, are in the episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, not recognizably because we manipulated enough. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a lot of times we marry it with some animals, you know, uh, some, some vicious animals of some sort to try and really help the, 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 uh, the vicious, you know, the, the, the attack of it. In scenes with large scope sounds, I'm thinking of battles and sea voyages, what are viewers hearing that they don't necessarily know they're hearing? You know, for instance, I'm thinking you have to consider the sound of wind or the sounds of waves crashing onto the side of the boat. Um, you know, we, we put a lot, you know, say if, if it is a scene where they're on the deck of a ship uh, going through, um, you know, we have layers of sounds in there, be it the water against the boat, uh, the wind, the flapping of the sails, uh, the movement of the guys on the deck, uh, the movement of the gear of the guys on deck, the voices of the guys on the deck. You know, there's probably 30 to 40 sounds um, that, you know, we, we put into into a place to where you don't realize you're hearing it for the most part because it just... We try and make it so it feels real. Feel like you're standing on the deck, not thinking about all the individual sounds. Why don't we hear part of another scene? So one of the protagonists of the show, Danny Targaryen, tries to get an uncooperative dragon to take her somewhere. Dragons are obviously fictional. So, how do your, how does your team, you know, go about creating that sound? Um, that's always a tricky one, especially as the dragons get bigger and we keep having to change it. Um, you know, there's a lot of different animal sounds in there. Uh, we'd like to try and keep it organic. Um, by that, I mean we don't like to take sounds and manipulate them too much. We like to f- find sounds of animals. You know, we have a massive library of animals. Yeah, like what? And we try and. We try and find, uh, what's that? Like, what kind of animals would sound anything like a dragon? Um, ones you wouldn't think of. Um, you know, that's the thing that we, that we try and find, actually, is animals making sounds you haven't heard them make before. You know, you might know the sound of a certain animal what, that it makes when it's, when it's angry, but you might not know what sounds that it makes when it's, you know, uh, uh, I don't say happy, but, you know, other, other different sounds that, that it'll make. Um, you know, especially for the more intimate moments with the dragon, uh, like the one you were playing. Um, you know, there's there's injured animals that we've recorded. Um, you know, buffalo, and uh, what are the other ones? We had a moose that we've recorded before. Um, you know, big bigger animals, but usually making sounds that aren't the ones that you that you've typically heard before. Wait, so you that went? Way, you that went? Way they won't sound familiar. You went in and uh, recorded an injured b- buffalo. 
I did not, unfortunately. Um, my, I have a sound designer on the show, Paula Fairfield, who is the one who's really responsible for the most part for the how those dragons end up sounding. Um, she is from Canada and happened to be up there uh, not too long ago. And while she was there, I went to a, an, an animal farm that happened to have these animals that they were taking care of and just did a bunch of recording of you know, their breathing, you know, their labored breaths and, and other, other, other vocals that they were making and just, you know, continue adding it to our library. Do you travel around with a microphone in hopes of stumbling upon sounds you can use in Game of Thrones? I do have a portable recorder that is always in my bag. Um, you know, it's not just for Game of Thrones, it's for anything. You know, if I hear anything interesting, I do try and take it out and try and capture it. Um, so, you know, it's my, my sound effects library is, is an ever-growing, uh, ever-growing thing. We're speaking with Tim Kimmel. He's a graduate of CU Denver, and he's supervising sound editor for Game of Thrones. The sixth season is about to get underway. And Tim, I'm picturing an old radio show where they, you know, close doors and kind of fake small doors to make the sound of a door closing or, you know, coconuts in a pattern to... Uh, do the sound of horses clopping. Right. Uh, do you create sounds like that? I think I think those are called foley artists. Do, do you do that for uh, yeah. Game of Thrones? Yeah. Oh yeah, we have a we have an amazing foley crew uh, for, for Game of Thrones. Um, you know they have they have a lot to deal with in this show, um, from from you know helping the movement of the dragons to uh, you know the, the smallest little details of people moving cups on a table. Um, you know, a lot of that is recreated on a Foley stage uh, by my great Foley crew. So if there's a character who is putting a chalice down, you've got to do that on on the Foley stage? Yes, we always redo that on the Foley stage. Huh. You know, and that when, the, when, they, when the knights are walking around, we, we've got the sound of their armor and the sound of their, their scabbards on their belts, you know, clinking as they walk by. And, you know, as they grab their swords and, and move it around, we've, you know, it's all stuff we've, uh, we recreate on the Foley stage. Weirdest object they've used? Huh. Um, good question. Um, because they make some amazing sounds that even I don't know where they come from because I'm not, unfortunately, timing wise, able to be there with them all the time. Um, they 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 usually try and keep a lot of that secret from me. Unfortunately, you know, one <laughs> one of my favorite sounds that they ever they ever did um, a couple seasons ago, um, they were uh, catapulting these barrels full of uh, of shackles at uh, at a, a building. And the sound of the barrels rolling by, and you know they had these. First, they did the shackles moving in the barrel, but then they did this other, other low sound of these barrels rolling by. That I don't know what they, how they created, but it's just this amazing, uh, low, whooshy kind of sound as these barrels go by. They won't, they won't tell me that secret, unfortunately. It's Tim Kimmel. He's a graduate of CU Denver, supervising sound editor for Game of Thrones on HBO. The sixth season debuts Sunday. There's just something about a secret compartment, knowing an object has something hidden within. 
Denver artist Kagan's sound has built his career on this. He makes puzzle boxes, basically wooden containers that can only be unlocked with a careful set of moves. He's won more awards than any other puzzle maker at the International Puzzle Party, and we paid a visit to his studio. Yeah, my name's Kagan Sound, and I make puzzle boxes for a living. To me, anything that is hollow inside and requires more than just one basic move to open. It's just any fascinating container that opens in an unexpected way. The first time I saw a, a traditional Japanese puzzle box, we were in Chinatown and they were you know, selling these in one of the shops there. Uh, it was an all-wood box with 20 sliding movements around it to open it, which just blew my mind. It was just like a just fascinating mechanical object. I think as a kid, I also just tried to break things down, like how were these made? It really left a lot to the imagination. Even, even after solving it, I just sat and wondered how could this even be made? Okay, so what did I like about solving mazes as a kid? I don't know what it was about mazes, but I, I was like a sponge. My parents would get me maze books and I would just solve them and then try and recreate them and draw them. And I started drawing mazes on massive sheets of paper that were three feet wide and four feet tall. And in a sort of funny way, I would like want my dad to try and solve these things that he just would, it was so ridiculous that there was no way he could possibly do this. It would take him too long. And I think this is, this is in like 2001, I made a puzzle box and uh, I put it in a puzzle competition and it was my way of expressing a maze in mechanical language. Uh, it won two awards. I think it was the first time any puzzle won two awards. It's also responsible for putting me on the map and giving me this amazing job. This is a locked box until you play this tune. His ideas are really unique, and they're not just a variation of somebody's puzzle, which often is the case. They're absolutely brand new, and nobody's ever done anything like it. So Jerry Slocum is considered the world's foremost expert on mechanical puzzles. Kagan, I think, is another level higher in terms of the quality of and variety of designs, and his craftsmanship is just unbelievable. I'm sure you know about the desk that he made that's an organ. It's funny, people keep wanting to go back to the desk. At any rate, the, the desk itself plays music in that drawers are, you, you push them in and pull them out, and it, the air movement of that is enough to make noises through organ pipes. So the air is actually pushed and moved around inside this desk. Essentially, it's remembering these notes that you play, and if you play the correct tune, part of it opens up. <laughs> Once in a hundred years or something would anybody come up with that, and nobody's ever come up with anything like that before. It's absolutely out of this world. <laughs> Those types of projects sort of lend themselves to a big story, and so people really want to hear about it. For me, I guess there's an equal amount of fascination in things that are probably less obvious in, in terms of telling a story through a design. And, you know, a box is sort of like a little miniature story. 
Kagan Sound is an artist and puzzle designer in Denver. See a slideshow of his work at cprnews.org. Our news fellow Sam Brash produced that story, and special thanks to the AP. Still to come, forget the mouse trap. Two Colorado kids have built a better ice cream cone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver teenagers Oliver Greenwald and Sam Nassif are getting their 15 minutes of fame. But it'll be a while before we know if their invention also makes them rich. They've created an edible ring that makes melting ice cream a little less messy. The boys appear on the ABC reality show Shark Tank tonight. The two will promote their drip-drop cone to a panel of millionaire judges and several million viewers. They've already taped the episode, but ABC forbids them from telling us what happened. Greenwald and Nassif spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. The drip-drop is an edible ring made out of waffle cone ingredients, and you slide it up the ice cream cone, and it cinches on tight at the top, and then when the ice cream drips, it drips onto the actual drip drop, and it catches it, and then afterwards, when you're done eating the ice cream, you can eat the drip drop, and it'll taste really good. So, Sam, most inventors have this aha kind of moment, you know. Mm. Uh, Did you have one of those? Yes, we definitely did. So, at our Grayland Country Day School, our middle school, we entered the Gates Invention Competition, and they challenged us to come up with a problem and make a solution. So, all and I were just looking around for problems anywhere, um, trying to come up with ideas, and we both happened to be at an ice cream store in fifth grade, and we saw this little girl, and she had ice cream all over her hands and clothes. She was messy, her, she was crying, and her mom was trying to desperately clean her up with napkins, and we both looked at each other, and we just said, that we thought there had to be a better way. And so, Oliver, once you understood this problem, how did you come up with this particular solution? Well, there's this um, particular method called the design thinking method, and it's all about making prototypes and refining them and um, using empathy. And the empathy part was where we saw this little girl um, with ice cream all all over herself. And at first we thought um, it should be clay, and then we thought uh, maybe 3D printed, but then we eventually got to the stage where it should, oh, it should be edible. Um, And that's where we used a waffle maker, and we poured the batter on it, and we'd press it and shape it, um, and that's how we ended up creating it. Does the the drip fit any type of cone or a certain type of cone, or how did you f- figure that out? Because I'm assuming you know cones come in different sizes. Yeah, so right now we're just in the um, in the early stages of perfecting it, and so right now it only fits the sugar cone. But uh, once we get everything settled, we're definitely going to branch out and uh, have it fit all types of cones. So why not? continue using napkins. I know if if things drip, just use napkins. Why not do that? Yeah. So one of the big problems we were trying to solve is we wanted to make it environmentally friendly. And so we wanted to save as many napkins as possible. And we've actually figured out that per year, if we have drip drops in stores, we can save about 1 million trees. So we did a lot of math trying to figure that out. And we we thought that's a lot of trees. We want to save them. Let's make a drip drop and solve all these problems. And did you hire someone to do that that analysis for you? Or, or is that something you two came up with? Yeah. So actually, um, with a little help from Oliver's dad, we came up with the ideas and the amounts of drip drops that we'd sell each year and the amount of napkins in each tree. We finally came to the conclusion that 1 million trees per year would be the right amount. So how did you figure out how to make this edible ring? Yeah, so Sam's dad is actually um, a runs a salad business, and so he knows a lot about food and construction. Um, as I said, we we used a waffle maker, and we poured the batter in, and then we flattened it and shaped it. Um, but then eventually we came to a, 
a mold guy in Denver. Um, and so he gave us some silicon molds where we poured the batter into them and we put them in our home toaster oven. And in about 40 minutes, out come drip drops. And did you think about the taste of it? Was it or was it strictly the the keeping the ice cream from from getting all of your hands? Yeah, we definitely wanted to to put taste in our in our minds because um, that's a lot of what the drip drop is. Is that it tastes good, but also um, functionality wise, it works. We first just did the functionality and it came out and it didn't taste so great. So we kept tinkering and we got the drip drop to taste like a cookie. Do you think if this idea takes hold? that ice cream shops are going to invest the money for this edible ring? I mean, like I said, why not continue using napkins? Well, actually, our plan is to license the drip drop to an ice cream cone manufacturer. So it wouldn't actually be directly selling it to the um, ice cream stores such as DQ. But we have been doing a lot of market research and um, going to Bonnie Bray Ice Cream and asking people about what the likelihood of them buying a drip drop is and came out very strong. A lot of people want the drip drop. So we're really excited to hopefully get in the store soon. Now, Oliver, you actually started this project in fifth grade when you entered an innovation contest and you're now freshman in high school. So, so what took so long? Well, once we entered the Gates Invention Competition, we ended up getting second place. Along with that, we got uh, we were awarded money for a patent lawyer. And so uh, up until now, we've been working with our patent lawyer. It's taken three years, um, to, and we finally received a design patent. And there are also three more pending, um, but that's definitely taken a bulk of our time. And Sam, how much help did you, you have from your parents with this? Yeah, so... Well, at first, it was really us, but we definitely want to have all the help we can get. So if our parents can contribute at all, we're going to ask them for help. And they've definitely put in some great input and advice that we wouldn't be here without them. So did they uh, push you into going for the Shark Tank, uh, that TV show, or how, how, how did that roll out? Well, even before the drip drop even started, we both love Shark Tank. I mean, we've been watching it, and we've always dreamed of being on it. And as the drip drop came into play, we thought maybe there's a possibility that we can get on this show. So we started with a huge pool of 50,000 applicants, and we made our own audition videos, and we were just super excited about the whole process, and eventually it whittled down to an elite 200 who got on the show. So that's how it really all happened. There were a pool of 50,000 applicants, uh, but, but you were whittled down to 200. Um, so, so how many actually are going to be a part of this, this competition as a whole? Yeah, so 200 people actually get the chance to pitch their ideas to the Sharks. They actually only take about 130 of those people to air throughout the year. And we're going to be among three other entrepreneurs in this one episode tonight. And Oliver, how does it feel like to actually be on television? You've got your invention you've worked with since you were in fifth grade. How does it feel to be actually on TV? Yeah, it's just a dream come true. I mean, only in America can there be two 14-year-olds with braces pitching their invention to billionaire tycoons. It's just a great feeling. And, and did you get to know any of the judges at all? Or? Uh, not really. Uh, we only saw them a couple times before. I mean, we saw Mark Cuban walking in. We actually played catch with him with a ball, which was really cool bonding moment just to see him. But um, just really on the show, we only got to see him. We didn't get to see him afterwards too much. And I want to, uh, you know, kind of wrap this up with, with you know, is this going to continue on? If let's say the drip drop does not happen, let's say you've worked hard on it, it goes some, is that going to uh, be it for you? Or do you have other ideas that maybe you, you want to bring up if this doesn't go forward? Yeah. So we come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Both of our parents have started their own companies and businesses. And so this is just kind of the building blocks. And we've learned a lot from this process with the drip drop. So even if this doesn't work out, we both love coming up with new ideas and new inventions. And in the future, we'll definitely continue to invent 
and innovate. So, what about your social life? Do you guys still have time to go out and like play Xbox and stuff, or are you guys all in like boardrooms and things like that? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely been hard to uh, to balance the drip drop and our social life and our homework. Um, but we've we've had to make some sacrifices to work on the drip drop. But I think it's definitely all been worth it. And Sam, you two are friends, so I'm assuming you see a lot of each other. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> we see each other during the day, drip drop, sports. So we're seeing each other a lot. Um, haven't gotten sick of them yet. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sam Nassif and Oliver Greenwald of Denver invented the Drip Drop Ice Cream Cone Ring. They'll appear tonight on ABC's Shark Tank. It airs at 8 Mountain Time. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.